The hum of the air whooshing around the car accompanied my bored stares at the hours of towns, farms, and coastal highways. My focus was only occasionally broken by my little brother chirping up to once again ask our parents, Are we there yet? Reminding me again why we were on this trip to begin with. My mom sighed, exhausted by what I'm sure was another migraine she was so often trying to smile through. Sensing her frustration, my dad chimed in with a quick, Almost, buddy. If it weren't so numb from the hundreds of miles of road we'd already traveled, I would have almost said my dad even sounded excited to answer that question this time. The sun was high in the sky by this point in our journey, and the sound of cicadas flooded my ears as the car rolled to a stop. I peered up through my window to see Dad had pulled over at a small roadside diner. The place was obviously well past its prime, but judging by the amount of big rigs parked in the neat rows to the side and the scattering of cars out front, it was still doing pretty well. I hadn't even noticed how hungry I was until the scent of grilled meats and syrup wafted over me. The sound of bells chiming called the waitress to attention. Hi there, guys. My name's Stacy, and I'll be taking care of you today. She said happily while walking us to our booth. Cole asked our mom if he could have pancakes, and she nodded, bringing a huge smile to his face. He was quite the people person, even at just six years old. His bright blue eyes and curly brown hair drew people to him. Even our waitress couldn't escape the six-year-old's charm. He regaled her with the story of how our grandparents were going on a long trip and didn't need his big old house anymore, so he got to have his very own bedroom now. The next leg of our trip went much faster, helped no doubt by the full stomachs we had, helping to lull both of us to sleep. As I came to, inside of the car I was washed with a soft orange glow, and through the tree line I could see it. The house was a beautiful old Victorian-style home with a stunning garden, although at the time I couldn't have cared less. The car kicked up loose gravel as we made our way down the long driveway. Mom mumbled something about how I had been there once before, but I would have been way too young to remember. Dad pulled the car to a stop in front of the old house. Eager to get out and stretch my legs again, I was the first one out of the car. As my family began to unload themselves from the car, I walked towards the old house, hearing Cole call for me in the background. I waited briefly to let him catch up with me so we could explore the new house together. The structure loomed dominant against the wild gardens and stone paths that surrounded it. The two of us made our way laughing and racing to the back garden. The sounds of nature were new to me on this scale and I found the buzz of the cicadas exhilarating. I even went so far as to tell my brother they were the sound of the sunbeams themselves. Following the stone path led us to the tree line of the forest. The stone path turned to packed dirt as the cool air from the shady forest floor enveloped us. Austin, look! Cole called to me, pointing down to an old pocket watch that he had found along the side of the path. He scooped it up quickly and inspected his new treasure to be sure it was to his liking. 
Mom called for us from the front of the old house, and was just as eager to explore the inside as we were the outside of the house. I ran back to the car, where our parents could be found pulling out our bags and setting them on the porch. Dad noticed the watch shimmering in Cole's hand and asked him where he had found it. We answered, and Dad shrugged, stating that Grandpa must have dropped it at some points and that Cole could keep it since, like the house, Grandpa didn't really need it anymore. Why don't the two of you go in and find your rooms? Mom said, seeming to now share in some of the excitement that I had detected earlier in Dad. Not wanting to get the second choice of rooms, I bolted into the house. Greeting me as I entered was a large, dark oak stairwell, curving and leading up to the bedrooms. As I ascended the stairs, I couldn't help but take in how dusty the place was. A thin, blue-gray layer seems to blanket every surface in sight. At the landing along the bottom of the wall was a large, ornate, iron exchange vent cover, billowing cool, damp air onto me. I chose the room with the best view of the back garden and woods lighting it. From my vantage points, I could even see the tips of the other similarly old houses peeking through the forest canopy. That first night in my new room, in our new house, surrounded by strange foreign sounds and creaks from the age of the house, left me with little sleep. As days went on and weeks passed, I settled in a bit better. The creaking sounds late in the night still woke me up on occasion, though. I always found myself growing frustrated with Cole. My things started going missing, and days later would show up somewhere in the garden where he now spent the bulk of his time. I'm not sure if it was from the isolation from other kids, or just because we finally had room to play for the first time, but Cole began talking to a new imaginary friend. This didn't strike me as anything particularly interesting, as he had had plenty of imaginary friends before, but this was the first one that seemed to stick for more than a day or two. The most interesting thing to me in the house was the large vents and the occasional small door cut into the walls, often leading to small crawl spaces or storage closets throughout the home. I could usually hear Cole talking through them, and although I knew there was no one actually with him, it always unsettled me a little. One evening, when I was helping my mother with the monumental task of dusting the home, I noticed small prints in the dust. Curious, I followed the prints, and each time the path would end at one of the vents or one of the little doors. When I showed them to our mom, she seemed displeased, but brushed it off, saying, I'll have your father pick up some rodent traps. Satisfied with the situation, I continued on with my day as normal. As the last visages of light from the setting sun faded from my window, I nestled into my blankets to sink into sleep. The sounds of the world faded, and weightlessness took over me, until I was forced awake by the sound of the stairs creaking, followed by the click of what I thought must have been the back door. I stood hastily, rubbing the sleep from my eyes, taking in my surroundings. The familiar sound of walking in on the stone pathway drew my attention to the back window. The moon was high in the sky, casting its cool white glow onto the world. 
As my eyes finally gained focus, I realized I was looking at Cole, slowly striding along the path in the direction of the tree line. Unsure of what to do, I ran to our parents' room to wake them up. Clearly annoyed, Dad hurried down the stairs and out the back door to stop Cole, while Mom rushed to throw on her old white bathrobe and followed soon after. Once back inside the house, Cole claims to have no memory of getting out of bed to begin with. Mom, still sounding a bit worried, stated he must have been sleepwalking. As the two of us were sent back up to our beds, I could hear the loud clicks of the old locks and Mom scolding Dad for not being sure they were locked before he had come to bed. Over the next few nights, following Cole's sleepwalking episode, I felt as though I was always being watched, and that there were always eyes on me, no matter where I went. I also found myself losing things more and more often. This built up to me yelling at Cole for hiding my shoes along the garden path. Storming back to my room, I noticed one of the vent covers had shifted off. While I adjusted it, I heard a swift scuttle and saw what I could have sworn were little legs jets into Cole's bedroom. I followed into Cole's room to investigate. The room seemed to be completely empty. I noticed, however, that the glass on Cole's window was covered in small marks. Burned out from the evening, I trudged my way back to my bedroom and plopped down. I woke abruptly to the sound of scratching all around me. The sound persisted as shadows shot through the room, zipping across my bedroom walls in the moonlight. My gaze darted to my window, and there, staring back at me, were multiple small glowing eyes that met mine all at once. As quickly as I had been jolted awake, I felt my world go black as I fell to the floor. The following morning, I found myself lying on the floor next to my bed. Crawling to my feet, I called for my mom to come to my room, and I told her everything I could remember from the night before. She patted my head and told me it was just a bad dream, and that I was just hearing what was likely a mouse in the walls. That evening, as I walked through the garden, I noticed Cole standing where the stone path from our garden met the dirt path leading into the forest. He was holding the pocket watch we had found that first day, and he was murmuring something I couldn't quite understand. I called out to him as I approached, but he didn't seem to notice, staying transfixed on whatever it was he saw in the woods. Shaking him to break the trance he was in seems to be the only thing that actually worked. The second he came to, his eyes locked onto mine, and with the most frightened look I had ever seen, he said, I don't want to play with them anymore. Confused and overwhelmed, I told him we should go inside and play for the rest of the day. He nodded in agreement and took my hand as I guided us back along the path to the back door. I tossed and turned in my bed, plagued with nightmares that night, and waking violently to the sound of tapping on my window. Turning my gaze quickly there, I saw what looked like ten sets of glowing little eyes. And before I could make any sense of the situation, I heard the sound of scratching, growling, and billowing around me. Suddenly, I was overcome with a swarm of small shadowy creatures all over me. 
When I attempted to scream for my parents, I found myself completely paralyzed by fear. I had only wished I had known that they weren't there for me. Because as soon as they released me and scuttled off in different directions, I ran directly to Cole's room to see if he was okay. To my horror, Cole was gone. Nowhere to be found. I shot off to the ground floor of the house, jumping out the back door, calling for Cole. But I couldn't see him. The sound of me must have woke my parents. Because I saw lights coming on in the house and had my parents come running outside to meet me. The next few months were dim and plagued with a huge sense of loss from both of our parents. As soon as I graduated, I left that place behind me, hoping to forget everything it had taken from me. Both my parents are gone now. I only made my way back to this place because I am the last one left and someone has to clean the place up to sell it. My parents never changed my brother's old room after that night he went missing. As I stood in there, I could almost for a moment hear him asking my mom if he could have pancakes. Clinging to that memory, I let out a sigh. I miss you, Cole, I whispered. No sooner than having whispered those words did I hear the sound of scratching coming from the old ornate vent cover on the landing outside his door. As I shot my eyes down to inspect it, I saw the glimmer of an old pocket watch lying in front of me. I have since sold the house, and I made sure that I sold it to a family without children. If you find yourself moving to an old Victorian home nestled in the woods, please don't make the same mistake we did. Check your vents. I live in a small, tight-knit rural community in the Scottish Highland Territories. Obviously, I won't disclose exactly where, but all you really need to understand is how out of the way we are. Miles and miles of road winding around endless hills, burns and locks separate us from the nearest town where any brand name stores operate. My mom and dad are farmers, but in a more rustic sense. Think subsistence farming, with a little bit of good faith selling and trading with the nearest neighbors. In the north of Scotland, cell phone and internet coverage is unreliable at best anywhere outside your own home. My aunt and uncle visit every now and then from Glasgow, and if I want anything, I can get it sent up here. We're not all that disconnected with modern-day technology and postage. But, anyway, I only told you all that to give a little bit of context towards my situation, a feel for where we are. We have some sheep and chickens, but mostly our pride and joy has been our cows. We keep them happy, and they have plenty of space to roam and have good lives. We genuinely care about them. My dad especially. Even after fifty years of heading the farm, he still hates having to slaughter any of them. Big softy he is. Something most people don't know about cows is that they tend to stay in barns during the day if they have the chance, and then head out to pasture at night. One evening, about two weeks ago, 
We were at the table for a late dinner when we heard one of the cows crying out, louder above the usual bustle. When a cow is in pain, or especially scared, it cries out in this weird, whining scream, high-pitched. Me and my dad gave each other a look and grabbed our torches and ran out into the field with our collie, Kira, to try and see what it was. When we reached them, the beams of the old flashlights swept across the scattered herd, most of them moving and giving these scared moos. No matter how long you work on a farm, it's always unnerving being out there at night. All those big animals with their eyes reflecting with that ghostly green glow. Quickly, I spotted one amongst the herd, Nell, with a damp red glistening wound on the neck. Me and my dad spent a little time getting close to her, but it took a while because she was understandably skittish. Finally, getting a closer look, I felt my heart drop and my stomach churn when we saw it. A bite. A big one. Another thing you need to know about Scottish cows is that they don't have any natural predators. Foxes are too small, and the wolves and bears died off decades ago, so nothing could have or should have done this. We heard Kira growling, and turning the flashlight to her, we saw her low to the ground, baring her teeth, face pointed towards the far corner of the field. We turned our beams, and stood there, still as stone, was one of the cows. It was eerie seeing it just standing there, unmoving and staring back at us. Caught in the light, it wasn't hard to see that its lips and chin were wet with blood. My dad looked at it with his mouth partially open and eyes narrowed, placing a hand on my shoulder and stepping in front of me. It was Clarabelle, one of the larger of the herd who was a couple of months into her pregnancy. We'd never had aggression in our animals before, just the old nip and shove. She must be sick, muttered my dad, before adding, Take Kira inside. The words came through to me, but I felt frozen as still as that cow. She was looking dead at me, those reflective eyes a sheer pale green that bored into my soul and sent chills down my spine as I watched a single red bead of blood trickle down her lips. My dad shook me softly, repeating himself a little more firmly, which woke me from my stupor. Nodding, I tore myself away from the cow's stare and pulled the disgruntled collie away and backed up to the house. It was only on that return trip that I realized how hard my heart was racing, thumping away in my chest. Something about the whole situation felt off, and I hated leaving my dad alone back there. I told my mom what had happened and explained everything, leaving her as confused as me and my dad. Thankfully, it wasn't long before he came back in, announcing he had gotten her back and locked her and the bitten one, Nell, in separate pens in the barn, away from the others. He'd call a vet and see if we could get the herd checked in case there was some kind of disease going about. Needless to say, I did not sleep easy that night. Late in bed, all I could think of was the look in its eyes, the intensity and intent I could feel behind it. I love animals, 
and I didn't scare easy. But this felt different. Felt wrong. After a good few hours of tossing and turning, struggling to keep the cows off my mind, sleep finally took me. I woke with a start to the sound of my dad shouting from downstairs. Frantically, I rolled out of bed and shoved on some clothes, stumbling down the steps with a nervous lump in my throat for what could have happened now. It was early, a cold amber tinting the highlands from the sunrise, peeking through the cloudy gray sky. The front door was lying open, so I hurried outside and spotted the herd standing in the middle of the field, looking towards the farmhouse, all making distressed mooing sounds. I saw my mom stood in front of the open barn doors, covering her mouth with her hands, a look of shock in her eyes. Nervously, I stepped forward, till I laid eyes on it too. The sights made my guts rise, my hand coming to grip onto the barn door to support my legs, which felt like they were about to give out from under me as I tried not to vomit. On the left side of the barn, the wooden stall separating Clarabelle from the cow she'd bitten had been smashed through, the wood splintered and broken. In the pen, Clarabelle was stood over the mess that was Nell, mouth full of bloody meat. The dead animal's throat was torn open, her blood splattered across the wall and hay-covered floor from where it had been ripped out. It wasn't just that, though. Her stomachs were eaten into as well. A gaping hole where her gut was still warm and strewn with gore. And before I turned away, I was fairly sure I saw the partway eaten body of a fetal calf amongst it. The way she'd been moving to take each bite and swallow it was unnervingly quick and erratic, nothing like a cow's usual lazy motions. I couldn't stomach another look, the sound of meat being torn and chewed by blunt teeth, the offensive coppery smell of the blood filling my senses as I struggled not to hyperventilate. It was then I heard my dad yelling having grabbed a pitchfork and began to try to force Clarabelle back from the body, and it took him physically prodding her to even get her to step back. Speaking loudly, he told my mom to call our neighbor, Horace, to come round and bring his rifle. She ran back from the scene in a hurry, but I was still frozen as I watched my dad shout and fend back the bloodied animal. Clarabelle swallowed with a gross, gulping noise and as soon as she had nothing left to chew on, she moved forward towards the corpse again. Hey! My dad yelled at her, thrusting forward the pronged pitchfork in an effort to scare the cow back, but she completely ignored him. She was strong, the strength behind her movements knocking the makeshift weapon out of my father's hands as she forced her way back to the corpse of Nell. When she finally reached it, she immediately bit down again into the pit of the dead cow's stomach. But when she'd opened her mouth, it was wider than I'd ever seen a cow's mouth open before. Clarabelle made this horrid noise, like someone with a hoarse breath breathing inwards. My dad took a few slow steps back, watching in horror as the terrible feeding continued. 
I was still stood in the doorway to the barn while this was happening, and glancing back to the house, I could see my frantic-looking mom looking out the window at us from the kitchen on the phone, talking to someone who I guessed to be Horace. I heard my dad mutter something, drawing my attention back towards the broken stalls. What's in God's name? He had gone pale, a look of confused disgust and fear on his face. Instinctually, I looked to follow his gaze, and saw it too. I felt the breath leave my shaking body, limbs and chest going cold. I'd mentioned before that Clarabelle was pregnant, but we could see her belly distending. It was moving, shifting as something was pressing against it from the inside, her abdomen becoming visibly larger and the skin thinner as she fed. But the thing pressed against her from the inside. It didn't at all look like a calf. It looked like an arm, a hand pushing outwards for a moment. I took a few faltered steps back, and my dad turns to me and began storming away from the scene, moving past me and marching to the storage shed. When he re-emerged, he was carrying a jerry can of petrol, and the look on his face was terrifying. It was this God-fearing anger, like he was hellishly intent on writing what we could both see was so wrong. He walked right past me into the barn, and immediately began splashing it on Clarabelle and the stalls. The sound of her horrid, breathy crunching and swallowing still permeating the chamber, the thing in her stomach still growing and convulsing, the smell of petrol and blood mixed potently as my dad emptied the can out into a trail which led past where I stood away a few feet from the barn. He closed the doors and pulled the latch locking it before lighting a match. He hesitated for just a second, looking at me as if to check what was happening was even real. All I could give him in return was a pale-faced, pleading expression. He dropped the match, which lit an instant tall flame, following the trail of gasoline quickly with a dull, crackling roar right up to and under the slight gap beneath the barn doors. It was full of hay and dried wood in there. We both knew that soon enough it would be engulfed, along with whatever it was that was inside. I stepped back as it intensified, feeling the heat coming off of it and watching the smoke billowing upwards. I could feel that tension in my chest, like I was waiting for something to happen. But even as I smelt burning meat... The pained bovine cries I was expecting never came. As I was about to let out the breath I'd been holding, a sudden ungodly shrieking started. I ran as the sound burst forth from the flaming barn, even as my dad stood firm outside the barred doors. I ran as I heard the horribly pained mix of animal and human wailing from inside the inferno. I couldn't take it anymore. I ran inside the house, straight to the bedroom, dropped in front of the toilets, and was sick. It was hours before the fire burnt out. There was nothing left of the barn but charred wood and ash, and the bones of the cows. 
I don't think I'll ever be able to feel safe out here again, though. Because my dad told me something that I'll never forget for as long as I live. He saw something escape the fire. Pizza is the best thing humanity has ever come up with. We've been to the moon. We can instantly talk to people on the other side of the planet. We've even deconstructed the human genome. But nothing can even remotely compare to getting a slice of greasy goodness after a long day. Pizza is my comfort food. Good days, bad days. Pizza will enhance my mood regardless of the situation. It's literally perfection. So it's no surprise that I'm pretty chummy with the mom and pop's pizza shop down the street from my house. I live alone, so I have no excuse not to pick up a spicy pizza pie from them at least twice a week. On a bad day, I'll admit I can and will devour an entire large pizza all by myself. There's a connection my brain creates with bad things for me, which explains my poor taste in meals and people. But all that matters is that for a few blissful moments, I feel happy. The pizza shop owners know me by name at this point, and they greet me whenever I come in. Being their best customer, they offer me samples of new menu items, the occasional free drink, and will give me extra breadsticks with my order. They're an older couple in their late 60s, and they're the sweetest bunch of people I know. I would even prefer them over my biological parents, who have a tendency to judge my lifestyle of being alone and consistently introverted, which isn't a fair judgment to have. I've tried having friends and relationships before, but I always feel let down when they tell me all their woes, and I silently listen to everything they say. But when I vent to them, they tell me I'm overbearing. Even worse, they change the way they look at me even though I don't look at them differently for what they've said. Relationships are just too much work, to be honest, and the idea of being locked in with someone that I'll grow to dislike makes me scared to try anymore. Even during the maniac year that was 2020, I would still go to my pizza place to pick up my food, so I could chat with Adriana and Luigi, the store owners and they would usually take a moment and catch up with me and listen to whatever I wanted to say. Being an older couple, they received their vaccines, and they offered me to come after they closed for a party, with, of course, free pizza. It was a tough call, but I cancelled my plans of being alone that night and watching YouTube until I passed out and decided to try to be sociable. Adriana asked me what toppings I wanted that night already knowing my answer, but being courteous and offering anyway. For the last six months, my order always includes a large meat lover's pizza. The sides and drinks might change, or I might order more than one pie, but they have a secret recipe they use on their meats that makes them notoriously good in my town. So this time, of course, I asked for a meat lover's pizza, and Adriana nodded her head, smirking as she wrote down the order. She said if I wanted to, I could bring one friend to the party. I nervously laughed and told her that she and Luigi were my closest friends. I caught a glimpse of an expression of pity, but she shifted quickly and patted me on the shoulder, assuring me that I'm young and it's never too late to find people, 
I nodded my head, even though I didn't believe it, and went back to my house for several hours while I waited for the shop to close. I snacked on some breadsticks, dipping them in the house-made marinara sauce, and went about doing mundane tasks like starting a load of laundry and cleaning out my email. My house was a mess, but if no one's coming over to visit, why bother keeping it clean? I don't mind. I can navigate the mess just fine, and I don't have any pest problems like the hoarders I see on YouTube. I sifted through dozens of spam emails from websites I didn't remember signing up for, cancelling subscriptions and opening interesting advertisements into tabs that I know will never get looked at again. Among all the junk mail and digital bank statements, I did find one email that I wasn't expecting. It was a message from my ex. We broke up almost two years ago. Uh, well, to be specific, she dumped me after saying I was too depressed to love anyone. And she couldn't help me through it anymore. Our relationship took a toll on her as well, and she needed distance to help herself. I didn't blame her. The last few years had been especially hard on me, and I've been told by enough people that I can be a downer, that I accept the truth. And maybe it is true that I can't love anyone when I can't love myself, but, at least in my opinion, I did feel something with her that I don't feel most of the time. But when she left, I had Adriana and Luigi, who listened to my story and consoled me, offering a free meal. They were the best. Luigi agreed that I needed help, but he also thought my ex was harsh, and I don't need people like that in my life. In the email, my ex apologized for ending things the way she had, asking if I was doing any better, and even asked if I wanted to meet up over dinner. Ecstatic, I sent my reply right away, and told her about the dinner happening later tonight. She replied just a few minutes later, and joked about how much I loved that pizza place, and said she'd come down. I told her that the pizza shop closed at 8pm that night, and that was the meeting time. I looked at her profile picture, missing her dark hair, big brown eyes, and the necklace I bought for her on our six-month anniversary. It was a silver necklace, a thin chain, and a heart-shaped pendant in the middle. I told her it was symbolic of how she belonged in my heart, and she laughed at the cheesiness, but that she thought it was sweet. I closed my laptop and sighed in disbelief. Was I really having dinner with my ex and my only friends all on the same night? I got up and showered, trying for the first time in ages to look better than just presentable. After cleaning up, I decided to deep clean my apartment. I still had a couple of hours before the dinner, and I wasn't sure how this date would end up, so I wanted my place clean just in case. It took me hours to clean my apartment but I finally got it to the point that another human being would consider it livable. Taking out several bags of trash and spraying the house with air freshener made me realize how far I had let myself go. I promised myself that no matter what happened after tonight, I wouldn't let myself live in such a pigsty. Even if no one came to see, I liked having a clean house. Right as I was getting ready to leave at around 7.45, I opened up Google Maps to get an idea of the traffic, and I saw that the pizza shop closed an hour later than I expected. 
I tried calling my ex to let her know to wait another hour, but my calls went unanswered. Strange, but I figured that if she got there early, then she could wait a while longer until the shop closed. I sent her a text of my plans since I could use some extra time to get ready, and I really wanted to make a good impression on her. She knew that I could be forgetful and was usually understanding of mistakes like this. So, after another hour of getting myself and the apartment ready, I began my drive to see my ex-girlfriend at the pizza shop. The pizza shop was in the middle of a business district, so by the time I got there, most people had already left work, and several blocks were completely empty. Just the way I like it. Luigi tells me they make enough money during the lunch rush so they don't stay open too late for dinner so that he and his wife can enjoy the evening. As expected, I pulled into an empty parking lot, save for Luigi's vintage Chrysler. I can't begin to tell you how much he loved that car. He tells me that he does all the maintenance himself. But my ex's car was absent from the parking lot. I began to panic. Maybe she didn't get my text and thought I stood her up. I walked inside the pizza shop, hearing the familiar jingle of the bells over the door, and Adriana greeted me as usual. I asked if my ex came through, and Adriana nodded while polishing an empty glass. She had come in, asked where I went, and took off after about twenty minutes. I was devastated. This might have been my last chance at mending things with her, and I blew it big time. Luigi came out from the back room with my requested large pizza, as well as a plate of wings, a side of breadsticks, and three beers. They consoled me about what happened with my ex-girlfriend. Adriana tried telling me that she had a bad attitude and seemed more than eager to get out of there, but it was still hard for me. But I immediately felt better after biting into that first slice of Meat Lover's Pizza. It was cooked to perfection, as always. There's something about how they season the meats that is so unique to this pizza shop. I've never found anything that can remotely compare. And today... The toppings tasted notably fresh. We laughed and ate the meal, and before I knew it, we finished the whole pizza, and I was a couple of beers in. I excused myself to the bathroom. I had a pretty weak bladder, and when I started drinking, I needed to pee almost immediately. As I sat down to do my business, I took my phone out and tried messaging my ex again. I noticed that none of the messages had been marked as read, I wasn't sure if she had blocked me or simply hadn't opened my text. I decided to call her to explain what had happened and maybe reschedule for another day. But as I sat in the bathroom with the phone to my ear, I heard the unmistakable sound of a phone ringing coming from the other side of the wall. I hung up the call and redialed. And sure enough, the ringtone came back on. I heard the sound of a chair getting shoved a door being pulled open, and my call went to voicemail. Something was definitely fishy here. I came out to the bathroom and tried calling the number back, but this time it went straight to voicemail. I asked Luigi what was going on, and after failing to convince me that nothing was wrong, I pushed my way past and headed into the bathroom. They have a large walk-in freezer where they keep their perishables. This freezer also backs up to the bathroom, so common sense told me that this is where I heard the phone ringing. 
Adriana begged me not to go into the freezer, since it was a health code violation to have non-employees contaminate the food, but I ignored her and went inside. I flipped the light switch on and saw carcasses hanging from the roof. I shivered at the sight, but I realized that they were cow and pig carcasses. This was a restaurant, after all, and I was jumping to conclusions. I called the number again, going straight to voicemail. Adriana stood in the freezer doorway, asking what I was expecting to find, and I shrugged and said I was sorry for ignoring her warnings. She forgave me, and asked me to join them back at the table to start desserts when I got back. I agreed, and stood up to return to the dining area, when I caught a glimpse of something from the corner of my eye. I looked back into the freezer. All the way in the back, muddled by fresh blood, I saw something shiny. I walked over to investigate, and I realized it was a thin necklace with a stylized, heart-shaped pendant on the front.